If you would turn with me now to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. It comes from the the same area that we talked about earlier and read from, where God here continues to show the foolishness of Israel's idolatry. You can find that on page 729 if you are following along in your provided Bibles. Let us now hear God's word. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stoop over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but they themselves have gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom you liken me, and make me equal and compare me, that we would be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn minded, who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation in Zion. And my glory for Israel. So far, reading in God's holy word. I encourage you also to turn to Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34. We have entered into that third part, third section of the Catechism. Or we consider first of all man's guilt, then we uh, consider man's uh, salvation, the good work that he has done, and now we look at man's response, the work that we do in gratitude to him. 
And there are three documents, you might say, that the Catechism looks at. The first being the Apostles' Creed. The second being the Law of God, in which we look at here. And so we see in that first question and answer, 92, what does the Lord say in His law? And I will uh, assume that many of you are familiar with this. It comes directly from Exodus chapter 20. And so those, that is the very law of God written on the two tablets of stone. And then we'll look at uh, question and answer 93. How are these commandments divided into two tablets? The first has four commandments, teaching us what our relation to God should be. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the law or does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitious rite, magic, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust Him alone, look to Him for every good thing, humbly and patiently, love Him, fear Him, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against His will in any way. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. This is what the church confesses. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. O gracious and merciful God and Father, speak to us. May that which we have known from an early age, at least for many of us, not only be in our minds, but be brought to our very hearts, that our lives might reflect and pour out our gratitude toward you. We ask that you would bless this word and give us your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Beloved people of God, I'm sure many of you are quite familiar with that proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, we are so familiar with something that it loses its specialness. It loses a, a bit of respect because it's so common to us. It's so ordinary to us. And it's really, in many ways, treated as no big deal. This is quite common, even concerning the very confession that we have before us. It's a danger for us. It was a danger for me as a, a young boy. I can remember uh, being trained up in all these things that I really didn't grasp how special and how important and how life-transforming and shaping and helping me understand 
things that this very confession has had, and even the beauty of it. It wasn't until I was in seminary and on my uh, internship that it actually really struck home. I was out on the streets of New York City, and I had uh, been granted this opportunity. It was put on the streets with with this uh, table, and on that table were our confessions and some other tracts and other uh, gospel things. And I remember stopping a lady and, you know, seeking as I was encouraged to, you, to do, to use the first question and answer as an evangelism tool. And so I asked her, I said, what is your comfort in life? What brings you joy? What brings you satisfaction? What brings you hope in your life? What about in your death? What brings you hope when you die? And... Following that, I read to her, just simply, flat out, uh, question and answer one. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death. And this woman was in tears. (laughs) Complete unbeliever. Never heard the gospel before. And she just said, how beautiful that is. How wonderful that is. And it really struck me that I just take it. For granted, as we have just recited so often, reciting it and take it for granted. The truth could also be said of these Ten Commandments. As we read them quite regularly, I don't know if you've caught on, but my habit is to make sure that we read the Ten Commandments at least once a month. And it's so easy to read those commandments and skip over that preface, that introduction, those beginning words. God doesn't come right out and just simply say to us, you shall have no other gods before me. No, he introduces it with these words, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He isn't driving us with a whip. He isn't compelling us under some sort of yoke. Instead, he begins and he says, I am God. I am. There is none beside me. And I am not only just a God, I am your God. And I am not only just your God, but I am a God who delivers See, the Israelites were able to see what type of God he was, that he was the one who saves. He saves from slavery, from misery. He saved them from those enslavers in Egypt who had put the whips to, his, to their backs and caused them to live in misery as they cried out in misery and in pain. And God came to them and delivered them from those enslavers. But this God who delivered Israel from the enslavers in Egypt has also delivered all his people, both in the Old and the New Testament, from a greater enslaver, Satan, sin, and death. And so God comes and he says, I am the Lord. I am 
your God, who bought you from the dock of slavery with Christ's precious blood. I have set you free from the whip and the tyranny of the devil. I have set you free from the shame and guilt of your sin. I have set you free from the fear of death. I am your God. There is none like me. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. It's rooted in that introduction. It's rooted in who he is and what he's done for us. And so as we look at this commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me, we need to first of all learn to recognize idolatry. Second of all, we need to see the results of idolatry. And thirdly, we need to see what is required in the first commandment. Now there are certain forms of idolatry to us that are all very clear. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me from Isaiah chapter 46, where he says, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him. From distress. And so many of us are very familiar with that picture of the Old Testament and, and even in the New of that idea of these gods that are made by man out of metal, these statues. We can just think of Acts 17, which speaks of Athens having uh, this, this city being full of gods, full of idols. One commentator says this. This wasn't just Luke's opinion. Ancient writers confirm this fact. Petronius once said that in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man. And Pausanias said that Athens has more images than all of Greece put together. Every god of Olympus had an altar or a temple there. And so these forms of idolatry are really blatant. They are in our face. They are clear. And they do still exist today, but they're far less common than what they were in that ancient day. But does that mean that idolatry is on the decline? Does that mean that idolatry is less? Not if we see that idolatry, as our confession understands it, is more than just a statue that one bows down to. But idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in, in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. First Chronicles 16 backs this up as it says, For all the gods of the people are idols. All the gods, all those, you might say, who are trust, who, in whom people trust are idols. 
And so our, ad, our catechism comes to that conclusion. That it is more than just bowing down to some statue. But it has to do with what you trust. What you trust in place of or alongside of the only true God. As Calvin says, our sinful nature is an idol factory. Man makes idols. That's what is seen here. That man is one who makes idols. He exchanges the creator for the creature, exalting something that is not ultimate, that is temporary, into the place of God who is everlasting. Our hearts create gods that we serve. Gods of sex, gods of family, gods of money. Our sinful nature is constantly Searching, striving, looking for, finding satisfaction, joy, comfort, happiness in those things that are created rather than the creator. Unbelief is a life of constantly searching for things outside of God to bring ultimate joy, happiness, the this is life sort of stuff. And yet Christians in their struggle against sin, like the Israelites, can also be drawn away into syncretism. Not only are we, uh, and so we are tempted to place alongside of God service and worship. Of course, we are, are willing to give a partial service here or there toward God like Sundays. Of course, I'll, I'll set aside that one day to dedicate to worship of God. But the rest of the week is for my career, my family, my social life. Of course, these things are good. We do them. But we too must submit them under God's direction into His glory and to His honor that they might be put in their proper place. Matthew 6, Jesus warns those that do their religious practices to be praised by men because they already have their reward. You may come and put on a religious face. You may do all these religious things, but if you are seeking to be praised by men, then your reward is temporary. It's not lasting. He calls them not to think earthly, but heavenly, storing up those treasures in heaven. And so he comes and says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will de be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so idolatry is more than just bowing down to some idol, but it is serving, worshiping, trusting in anything else beside the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, that God who delivers us in Jesus Christ. But in order to really properly shun as we are commanded, 
We need to understand the results of this idolatry, which brings us to our second point. The image of Isaiah 46 is a very telling one. As God reveals that foolishness, look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome. The load for the weary beast, they stoop over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden. They have themselves gone into captivity. Here God says, look, you've formed, you've shaped, you've fashioned your own gods. And what have they become? They're a god you carry around. One pastor calls them a wheelbarrow god. You have to pack them up. You have to carry the burden of this god. In other words, worshiping any other thing has a burden to it. There's a burdensomeness to it as it is a load that brings in, is brought into captivity. Again, I will never forget one very astute observation of one man who has no faith at all. And yet, he's able to see so clearly the burden of idolatry, the burden of sin, and even that necessity to worship and that heart inclination to to make idols. He says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid or a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is they are unconscious, that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Of course, we recognize that these forms of worship are evil and sinful. But it gets at the very heart. If we don't go against it, we're not conscious of it. They're unconscious. They're default settings. They're they're things that, that burden us. They enslave us. They entrap us. They are a heavy load that brings weariness and slavery as pilgrim's progress shows. So beloved, are you weary with your sin? Are you weary with your idolatry? The idol of being loved and liked? 
your desire to have that correct social media presence with all the likes, the idolatry of pornography, trying to have that satisfaction and that pleasure, that pleasure that only brings burden and guilt, or the desire to have a perfect family so that one becomes concerned and overbearing upon the children that they too become crushed by your weight. See, it doesn't have to be bad things per se. But it can be making those good things ultimate. Thereby, as our catechism says, even jeopardizing our relationship with God. One commentator says that this. Loving God is like loving your spouse. When you choose your mate, it is to the exclusion of others. You can't have both. You can't tell your wife, honey, here's my other lover. I really wanted you to meet her. I know you'll be really great friends. You both mean so much to me. Your wife has every right to say, it's me or her. You take your pick. No one would think this sort of wife as cruel or proud or unfair or intolerant of making by making such demands. Monogamy is her right as her husband's promise. That's why those traditional marriage vows include forsaking all others. And so idolatry, we see, leads to adultery. And so God is jealous for our exclusive commitment. And this brings us to our third point, the requirement of the first commandment. Our catechism teaches that we are taught then that God is deserving of exclusive worship. And this is for our good. Just think about Psalm 115 speaking about that tonal inability and the vanity of idols. And it concludes that those who serve them become like them. If we serve that which is temporary, we are temporary. If we serve that which is vain, we are nothing. This is the end of those who worship anything other than God. And we see this as well in our passage. Look at verse 5. To whom would you liken to me and make, equal, or make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? See, there is truly no other God. There is no one else that is worthy of praise and adoration. There is no other true God. And see, he is not a God that is carried. But instead, did you notice the difference, the contrast in here? He's not a God who is carried, but he is the God who carries. Look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you. I will bear you, and I will deliver you. That's the question you need to ask. Do you want a God that you carry 
We're a God who carries. We must remember that we cannot worship any other God because there is no other God. There is no one else who can meet all that we need. There is no one else who is worthy of honor and praise. The exclusivity of God's worship is for our good. Because he is the one who carries. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who saves us from even those idols that we want to carry around. And it's only in Christ that we can truly love God. Because it is in Christ that we truly know God. He is the one who reveals him, it reveals God the Father to us. And so we cannot find an even remote ability to keep this commandment outside of Christ. But it can only be fulfilled in Christ. And so, beloved brothers and sisters, as we have reflected on the first commandment, let us Remember its very essence. It's even its beginning. For God in declaring, I am the Lord your God, calls us into this personal relationship. He has shown us the salvation he has given to us. And he calls us to find true satisfaction in him and him alone. We need to recognize that idolatry is subtle. It's not just in physical forms, but also in those things that we would turn into idols, that we would make into idols. Even good things can become idols when we elevate it to ultimate importance. And so we need to serve God alone. And so this first commandment requires that exclusivity because God is unmatched. And in Christ, we find salvation being brought unto the Father, experiencing His love, His grace, and His mercy. That we can truly love, honor, and worship this God. And so let us find our ultimate and complete satisfaction and joy in our God alone, who redeems, who loves, and delivers who is a God who carries us. Amen. O oh, gracious and merciful God and Father, would you impress upon us those words of Elijah, who called the house of Israel, the people of God, to stop limping between two opinions. As he proved that there really truly is only one God in calling down fire from heaven to burn the sacrifice. And yet, Lord, there is only that one sacrifice in Christ Jesus. And so we thank you that you accept us in him. And may we then in gratitude and in love Worship you and you alone. Trust 
in you and you alone. And may we with Joshua say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Let us now stand and sing.